Welcome back to the Running Wine Mom podcast. I'm your host, Samantha Selinski, aka The Running Wine Mom. Joining me today is the talented author, Mickey Brammer, whose latest novel, The Collected Regrets of Clover, has been garnering attention for its poignant exploration of life, loss, and the beauty of unexpected connections. Mickey is no stranger to the world of storytelling. With a remarkable background in writing about design, architecture, and art for prestigious publications such as Afar, Architectural Digest, and Metropolis, Mickey brings a unique perspective to her fiction writing. Her storytelling shines through The Collected Regrets of Clover, where she introduces us to the remarkable journey of Clover, a death doula who has spent her life in the presence of loss and now finds herself at a crossroads between her past and new possibilities. In this episode, we'll explore Mickey's transition from her career in writing to the realm of fiction and how her background in design and architecture informs her storytelling. We'll also unravel the layers of The Collected Regrets of Clover, exploring the nuances of grief, the significance of compassion, and the power of forging connections amidst life's challenges. So whether you're a literature literature enthusiast, a design aficionado, or simply someone looking for an insightful and heartwarming conversation, you're in for a treat. Mickey, welcome to The Running Wine Mom. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me and thanks for such a lovely intro. <laughs> I always love the intros because I feel as though it gives like such a cool perspective of um, who I'm interviewing. And mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of people are like, wow, I didn't think Yeah, it's kind of like this is your life. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, yes, I'm so happy. I loved um, The Collected Regrets of Clover. One of my girlfriends had recommended it to me. Um, She read it for me. And um, I actually typically don't read what a book is about before I read it. Um, If someone recommends it to me, I just kind of like go with it. And this was just such an awesome, uh, like, story. And I'm so excited to get into it. Thanks Um, so much for reading. Yeah. But before we get started, to start each episode, we have our wine, wine, and win of the week segment. This is where we share our favorite bottle of wine or drink, then about something that has been bothering us and celebrate our recent victories. So grab a glass, take a deep breath, and let's get started. What is your wine of the week? W-I-N-E. Yeah. So I am Tasmanian and a lot of people don't know, but Tasmania has quite a a rich winemaking culture we do a lot of wines and we're best known for Pinot Noir so I would say my favorite Tasmanian Pinot Noir at the moment is Devil's Corner. I love Pinot Noir so (laughs) I will definitely hopefully be trying that out uh, soon Um, and what is your W-H-I-N-E of the week? I will say this is probably an annoying answer but I'm kind of my set point is quite optimistic so I tend to forget things as soon as they or not long after they bother me so I'm trying to think um <laughs> there hasn't been much um that's good yeah I think today what I don't like is weather that is unpredictable and today I'm in New York it's been it was really hot and humid this morning and now it's raining and I would prefer oh, yeah. it be all hot and humid all day or all raining all day it's when it's kind of capricious and you don't know how to how to dress for it when you're going out it's a little more difficult yes it has been raining here all day and uh it's definitely been like and i mean it's, it was cozy while while my kids were napping it was like a nice cozy time for me to catch up on some shows but then it's like okay i'm over it already <laughs> and what is your win of the week um the win is i did i really love summer um but i feel like i'm ready for autumn or fall as you guys call it and I've saw some some leaves changing on the trees today. So that was a nice sign that it's on its way. 
Yes, it is. I know as much as I don't want summer to end, I am ready for the coziness. Of exactly. Fall. Yeah. And <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I always like to ask my guests, what is one struggle you've overcome leading to where you are now? And what's thing, one thing that you are most proud of in your life? Yeah, a struggle, I guess, which I think a lot of people um, struggle with is confidence. Um, I was quite shy as a child, but the way I kind of learned to get over that was my we moved around a lot as a kid and I've lived since in as an adult in a lot of different countries so I think I benefited a lot from having to start at a lot of new schools and kind of learn to make friends and that's a skill that's really um really stuck with me so I think though it was a challenge it was something that I I learned to overcome um and it's really served me well and then I think I'm proud of I think kind of tying into that is my relationships I would say I'm very good at building deep relationships be they with friends or family or romantically and and I really value very deep relationships I'm not much for small talk and things like that so um, I would say that's probably one of the things I'm most proud of that's awesome and relationships are so important whether they are with family friends or um, a significant other Um, Mm -hmm. so I love that it's always good I love my having good relationships with my girlfriends and then mm. you know all of that my husband and so that's definitely something to be proud of Not and I, I think it's important to have all three um mm-hmm. I think relying on one particular type of relationship in your family I mean in your life it's it's good to have that but um I think it's nice to have balance so that you always have different people who know you in different ways Yes, I totally agree with that. Um, so the running wine mom, we have to talk a little fitness before mm-hmm. uh, we get into your book. So what is your favorite way to stay active? I play tennis. I try to play two or three times a week. And I also do reformer Pilates. And they're my two regular things. And then I kind of do things in between. I also love walking everywhere whenever I can. Um, and I saw you do a little ping pong. Is that what I saw? On your I do. Instagram? Yeah. <laughs> I had a job once um, where our meeting table was a ping pong table and my boss okay. would just ask me several times a day to play ping pong. And so as a result, I'm really good at ping pong. <laughs> I love that. Mm-hmm. Good hand eye coordination. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and how do you stay motivated to maintain your fitness routine? I actually have always been quite sporty and athletic, so I don't really find that I need a lot of motivation. Um, I Especially like I love tennis. I love Pilates. So um, that's probably a really annoying answer too. No, it's um, not, no, it's good to love it. That's it, when it's, and that's the whole point of, uh, you know, I am a high, also a high school health and phys ed teacher and we try mm-hmm. to teach lifelong fitness and it's like all about what you love to do. And that's, what's yeah. really important of it I would say maybe the social factor is uh something that kind of um helps inspire me to do it for example I love tennis because I can play it with friends and mm-hmm. I'm actually on a mission at the moment to get as many as my friends into tennis as possible because it's something you can play as you get a lot older you know I play at yeah. the Central Park tennis courts and you see these like old women in their, I think some of them are in their seventies, you know, playing doubles and their mobility is not great, but they're out there and they're, you know, teasing each other and their competitive spirits still there. And that's really inspiring to me that I would love to be doing that when I'm 70 with my friends. And so I figure I have to get everybody into it now so that (laughs) that will pay off in decades, decades time. Um, And can you talk about the relationship between mental health and physical fitness? If you can, if you have any correlation between the two. 
for me, it like they're so intertwined. Um, I always know that if I'm feeling really stressed and anxious, there's a good chance I haven't been able to exercise. You know, when you get busy and you just don't get the chance to exert energy. And so for me, that's really one of my biggest um, stress relievers and mental health kind of mm-hmm. um, tools. Uh, I also think for me, I actually can't sleep at night if I haven't moved my body. So that's a good way to make sure I do move my body every day because sleepless nights are the worst. Um, (laughs) So I always try to make sure I've done something in some way, which in New York, if you walk everywhere is pretty easy to do. Yes, I agree with that. Yeah. The walking, um, I wish like around where I live, it's not like you have to drive somewhere to walk basically, Mm -hmm. but I, that's the one thing that I would love to live in a community where you could just like walk to the coffee, you know, that's something that I maybe one day will (laughs) will Mm -hmm. be. Um, So I saw, I just want to ask like two personal questions. They're not really super personal, but um, Mm -hmm. I saw you posted, I think it was yesterday on your Instagram video and you're into minimalism. Uh, And, And like, I just, out of pure curiosity because I struggle with that so badly like how did you get into that what can you give me any tips because our house is like overrun with kids stuff and our stuff yeah I'm actually not sure I was wondering that the other day because I wouldn't say I've always been a minimalist I've always been very tidy and organized but I do want my both my mom and my brother love stuff they're not hoarders but they love collecting things and holding on to things and I think have more of a sentimental attachment to objects so I kind of grew it up in that space and I don't Mm -hmm. know if that forced me or to go like the complete other direction or it could also come from you know I've moved around countries a lot and so you always start with nothing and so I got used to it but I do find it very architecture I really love space where there's room to just kind of exist and there's not too much stimulation um I would mm-hmm. say sometimes I find spaces overstimulating so minimalism is is calming in that way and I think it's kind of a mental health thing yeah for sure um and then what's your favorite rom-com <laughs> that's all you said oh that is really people have asked me that and I find it hard to name one but I definitely <laughs> say the 90s are I think the superior era of yes rom-coms. I agree yes um, I think Pretty Woman, you know, mm-hmm. kind of started. I think Dirty Dancing was in the late 80s, but that was those two, I think, with a few exceptions, stand the test of time. Um, yes. And then um, maybe Notting Hill as a later one is a great one. Yes. Okay. I love those. Love all of them. I'm like, I always love rom-coms are my favorite uh, realm of movies. So I would mm-hmm. like to, uh, you know, hear what other people like as well. What's um, your favorite? Right, so you- um, so I like, um, I'm trying to think now that you say like Dirty Dancing and uh, Pretty Woman, Sleepless in Seattle is like yeah. one of my, I love that one. That's just one that I find like I go back to a lot. Um, and then in the, I think it was 2000s, like, 10 Things I Hate About You, mm-hmm. that would be a rock, that's like one that I yeah. also feel comfort in as well. So Yes, agreed. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you grew up in Australia, you ended up in New York City. Um, what was your inspiration and motivation behind your decision to move all, you know, halfway across the world? What drew you to the city and influenced your choice? Yeah, so my family have always been travelers. Um, mm-hmm. My great aunts 
traveled at a time when it was uncommon for women to travel by themselves, especially um, my parents. Uh, they've been divorced since I was one, but they both travel a lot. My dad lived abroad a lot and we will go stay with him there. So I think it's just always been part of um, my nature or world that um, that there's a whole world out there. And Tasmania is the bottom of the world. So I remember thinking of, as a kid, you know, I really wanted to see what was out there and I guess I always knew that I would and before New York I was living in Paris um, and then I moved to New York 10 years ago Um, as a writer you know that's kind of the best place to be Um, and so um, yeah and I I wasn't sure how long I stayed but I'm now here 10 years and I think I'll stay for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I mean, it's a great hub for you to be able to travel as you, you know, from New York City to other places in the world. Do you know how many countries you've been to? Been to? Oh, yeah, someone asked me that the other day, and I don't <laughs> keep count anymore. Um, but I think it's probably like in the high 40s, low 50s. Okay. Um, That's awesome. I try to keep going to new ones because I think it's really easy to keep going back to the ones you love. So I just mm-hmm. recently went to Finland, which I'd never been to before, and that was at it was it reminded me how much I love going to a place I've never been before and a culture I've never been before. That is on our list um, to go to Finland, but I don't know that we'll make it anytime soon with our kids being so little, but it mm. is, that's like our, um, before we had kids, that was our like next uh-huh. stop. And then I got pregnant and it was like, okay, uh, we'll yeah. just put that on hold mm. for, for a little bit. But um, so moving around so much growing up, like how did you figure out what to bring what to leave was there like challenges you faced during the process of moving around so much I think maybe that's where I learned not to really get attached to objects because you Mm -hmm. often have to leave them behind um and also I learned how to kind of make a space feel like your own pretty quickly um and so I think those were the main things. I'm quite good at packing, I would say. Like, um, you know, I could travel for – last summer I tra- traveled for five weeks with just a um, a carry-on. So um, I'm quite good at that. But I think um, just flexibility and adaptability is probably what you learn most because all sorts of situations come up. Um, yeah. And I guess you – you learn to be observant of your surroundings um, from a social perspective because you learn how to fit into this new social environment that you don't know. Um, but then also just from a new, I mean, in Australia, moving to different cities, you know, the culture is pretty similar, but moving to different countries, you know, there's a lot you have to observe in terms of customs and things like that. And even like Australia to America, there's a lot of things that are different that I kind of had to to learn so I think that but that's what makes it so interesting yeah that's wonderful um I definitely admire that about people who can just you know move around like that (laughs) and uh do you have any family in the U in the U.S. or um I do have cousins um yeah my some first cousins who've actually always lived in uh America um and I do I also when I was 17 I was a foreign exchange student in Lincoln Nebraska um (laughs) And which I actually loved, and I still am um, in touch with my host family and some friends from there. So um, I have a really close friend from high school, then from Nebraska, and her parents are kind of like my American parents. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome! Um, so the collected regrets of Clover takes place in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, how did living in New York City influence your writing and storytelling in in this book? Yeah, I mean. 
New York is just, for me, it's where I always wanted to live. And it's always kind of, I think for a lot of people has held this magic. And so living here and, and walking its streets and getting to know it, it really does hold a special part in my heart. But there's a specific reason I wanted to set it in New York rather than, for example, in Australia. And that was because it deals with, you know, a a difficult topic um, that wouldn't be accessible to a lot of people. You know, it's, um, it deals a lot with death and grief and things like that. And so I really wanted to set it in a place that even if people haven't been there, it's familiar to them through pop culture, through movie, the movies we've spoken about, through books and things like that. And I feel like instantly when you, imagine New York you kind of have an affinity with it and that my hope was that that would bring some sort of kind of comfort and familiarity for when people are encountering these topics that they wouldn't normally um, read about. Yeah so um, in your writing so you uh, have a very impressive portfolio of writing about design architecture and art Um, could you share how you initially got involved in that field and what sparked your interest in the subjects? Yeah, so when I was in Australia, I was editor of a magazine. It was a pop culture magazine. And through that, I did a lot of writing about design and architecture and travel writing, among other things. And then when I moved to New York, uh, the first job I got was as a copy editor for Metropolis magazine. Um, and so I learned a lot because you're reading all the stories and and from there kind of worked my way up to being an editor. I was eventually editor at large there. Um, and that kind of turned into a career writing about design and architecture because I really loved it and art as well. And I think, you know, I feel so fortunate that those are the things that I get to write about and I get to see inside people's mm-hmm. beautiful houses, which is wonderful. And then so writing about design and architecture obviously requires a keen eye for detail and understanding of aesthetics, which, again, I do not have. <laughs> so how do you approach the process of translating the visual experiences into written pieces that resonate with your readers? I think it helped that I was a travel writer first, because when you're a travel writer, you're at least the style of travel writing that I do it was kind of very evocative and descriptive. And with that, you kind of learn to think about the five senses, you know, what are you seeing? What are you smelling? What are you touching or hearing? And so that really helps convey a setting to people. And in the same way, I try to do that with um, architectural stories and interior design stories. Obviously, it, it depends on the publication, but I think the more you can evoke the feeling of being in the space, the the more the reader can connect to it. Yeah. Um, so let's get into the book. This is your mm-hmm. first published book. Mm-hmm. How did you feel about creating it? And how did you choose this topic? Because it is such a an interesting topic that I mean, I've never read a book that deals with the main character as a death doula. So yeah. how did you choose that specifically? Yeah, so um, I actually hadn't really thought about writing books before this idea came to me. And it actually came to um, it came from ever since I was a kid, I had had a lot of anxiety around the topic of death and I think in Australia probably sim- is similar to America uh, it's not something that's really discussed a lot which made it scarier for me and and so um, I kind of got to my 30s and realized oh you know this is probably something I should be curious about rather than avoiding it my entire life so I kind of dared myself to to immerse myself in it a little. And in New York, you know, there's so many things you can do about anything. So I just started going to talks um, by, like, for example, hospice doctors or um, I went to some seances or message circles they're called or 
you know, lectures on Stoicism because the Stoics, you know, they they philosophized a lot about mortality and things like that and then discovered these things called death cafes, which people think I made up for the book, but they're very real and they're all over the world. And, and through that, it did start to kind of make the topic more accessible for me. And I thought, well, I wonder if I could write a book that would make it accessible for people like me who wouldn't normally read a book about death and so write a book that was fun and joyful and uplifting and still explored these themes but in a way that wasn't maudlin or depressing which is why you know I would normally avoid those books and I know a lot of people do too and so that's when I discovered the the profession of a death jeweler I thought wow you know who would do that because it's a you know you're basically choosing to watch people die for your professional life and and that is a very noble thing to do and so I started thinking about what would make someone choose that career and that's how the character of Clover came about. And so can you tell us a brief summary of the book? Yes so it's about Clover a 30-something death doula based in New York City and she's dedicated her life to helping usher people peacefully through the dying process but in doing so she hasn't really lived a life of her own and she realizes that she regrets that And so through working with these clients, she begins to consider what it means to live a beautiful life and whether it's possible for her now to live a beautiful life of her own. And um, I just saw before we get into more of the in-depth of it, um, I saw that there's different covers for different for the different countries for the book. Is that so how did you choose what made you decide that um, to do different covers for each country that it's released in? That's a really cool concept. Um, well, that's kind of out of my hands, actually. I mean, I do yeah. get for the um, UK and US covers, I, you know, I did have some input in those, but all the four, I think it's in um, 25 countries, territories now. So um, they all kind of, they will either use other territories covers or create their own. But what's nice is it started with the US one with the, the flowers and then the UK one had the flowers and then a lot of other countries are doing the flowers which I love flowers so I think that's a really I really love all those different versions and it's so interesting to see how different cultures interpret the book and how they present it um because different things resonate with different readers yeah they're all beautiful they're beautiful from the ones that I saw um and so the concept of a death doula I didn't even know that was a thing um until I read the book (laughs) and uh like can you explain how it's different than maybe other end-of-life caregivers like a hospice professional or other care specialists at the end of life yeah so it's very similar and I think that the role itself has existed for thousands of years in essence you know it is what hospice workers do and doctors and nurses and priests and nuns and spiritual workers you know essentially sitting with the dying ushering them through to the the next stage but uh, I think it's just recently that that it has become a, a a known profession and I think probably the distinction is that with hospice workers they probably have a lot of different people that they're they're working with whereas death doulas generally have one client at a time um, and they also, there's many definitions of a death doula. When I was researching it, I was really, I was realizing that just how there's many ways to be a death doula. And some people do come from an, a health background and, and kind of combine it with the home health aid kind of skills. Whereas others, it's more experiential, which Clover is, you know, helping them kind of look back on their life and, and address their regrets and things like that, but also preparing for, you know, the logistics of, you know, paperwork and, and 
funerals and things like that. So I kind of decided after I read everything, I was like, okay, I will write the death doula as I would imagine I would approach being a death doula. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, um, I am in a Peloton's mom book mm-hmm. group on Facebook and that's how I get a lot of recommendations. Um, and I posted about your book after just saying how much I liked it. And, uh, someone had responded and said that they became a volunteer at hos- a hospice, um, center because of reading your book. Like, Oh, wow. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I thought, that's amazing. Wow, that's like, yeah, I wanted to make sure I shared that with you. Cause I was like, Oh wow, that's such, you know, your impact of, uh, I mean, I don't know if that's something that you thought would happen, but you know, people just opening their eyes to see what the opportunities are for helping others at the end of life and making it seem like such a comforting thing rather than a scary thing is kind of what um, you made it to be. Yeah. And I think that one thing that's important to point out is, as you mentioned with that person, is a lot of death doulas are volunteer because it's easy to think, oh, you know, what a luxury to be able to have someone with you at the end of it. You know, not everybody can afford that. But while some death doulas are paid, they're generally not paid very well. And a lot of them are volunteers and just do it more as a calling. And I think that is such an amazing thing to do and so special to dedicate yourself to doing that. And I wish that there were, was more financial and um, mm-hmm. mental health support for those types of people because like many of the most important people like doctors and nurses and teachers, there isn't, they don't get the support that they should and, and they suffer a lot of burnout. Yeah. Um, so how do you think that Clover's profession shapes her perspective on life and death and how does it influence her personal journey throughout the story? I think she's unique. Actually, uh, what I've discovered with a lot of people who are death doulas, a lot of them kind of come into it because they've had they've lost someone and nursed them through that and kind of realize that they have a sort of calling in that way. But in Clover's case, you know, she loses, she sees her kindergarten teacher die when she's six or five and her um then her parents die in an accident while traveling and so death is something that is present for her from the very beginning and and so she develops a curiosity for it and you know really wants to learn everything about it because it has shaped her life but in doing so she kind of becomes so entrenched in that and obsessed with death that it actually stops her from living life as she should and she becomes very isolated and a loner and doesn't really have a social life and so while a lot of people are kind of live life and are learning how to die she's like mastered the death part and really needs to learn how to live yeah and that's one of the questions that I was going to ask in a little bit but it kind of goes right along with this you know New York City is such a vibrant 24-hour city but her life seems so quiet and isolated in a city that's so big and um and loud I guess per se um, how did you want the readers to experience Clover being introduced to open doors and new experiences, friendships, and possibly romance? Yeah, I think it's interesting with those big cities. I've also lived in uh, Paris and Barcelona, and what I notice about all of them, you know, there's cities full of millions of people, but a good portion of those people are lonely and isolated. And that always really intrigued me, you know, how we can be surrounded by people and not find a way to connect with them. And I think with Clover, I kind of wanted to show that it's so easy especially if you enjoy being alone it's so easy to stay in that cocoon that you've built for yourself but you really do need to kind of take that step and be willing to to put yourself out there and it sounds so cliche but I think the reason why people I think people who read the book 
are like, well, how can she be so good and empathetic and know her clients and what they need so well, but be so socially awkward and not get those interactions? And I did that on purpose because I think a lot of us kind of have those masks that we wear professionally. And if it's your job, you know you're good at it, you know what people need, then that's very easy to do. And with her, she knows the outcome. These people are going to die. So there's no risk of her being rejected. Whereas from a a friendship or romantic point of view, that's herself that she's putting out there. And that's a lot more vulnerable. And she's been rejected before. And so she's protected herself by just choosing to observe the world in those aspects rather than participate. And so the big leap for her is trusting that she may get her heart broken but that that's part of living. Yeah. And, um, you know, the introduction of Claudia, she is the spirited grandmother that she's the one that kind of starts the change in Clover's life. Um, Could you tell us more about Clover's quest for closure and how Claudia's story helps inspire her to explore her own past and emotions? Yeah. So Clover is, I think she's 90 years old and she's this fabulous old woman who lives on the Upper West Side and she was a photojournalist in the 1950s and gave up that career to to be a wife and mother, as many women did with their careers in those days. Um, and though she seems to have lived this wonderful life, she also has a lot of regrets for having given up that. And um, not to spoil anything, but kind of Clover decides, as she does with many of her clients, that she wants to try and help Claudia resolve her regrets before she dies and I think there's one in particular that sets her on this short road trip um to try and find a particular someone before it's too late mm-hmm. um and I think with that with Claudia and with kind of all the other characters I really wanted to show that you know there's often we think we're alone but there's actually all these people around us who care for us or love us and are trying to kind of pull us out of our shells but sometimes we don't want to see that or we just don't see it for whatever reason and with Clover thinks she's alone but she is really loved and I think in the different ways you know from Claudia it's a more maternal or grandmotherly perspective and then there's uh, Sylvie, her neighbor, and then Sebastian, who is um, Claudia's grandson, and Leo, who is also her neighbor and is kind of like a, a grandfather for her. But all these people are very different, but they're trying to coax her out of her shell in their own different ways. Yeah, so true. Um, so um, one of the big parts of this book talks, not big, but I mean, it is a significant part. Something I learned about was the death cafes. So mm-hmm. I again, didn't know that they were a real thing. Can you talk about those? And are they everywhere? Are they just in New York City? Or how does that? <laughs> I know they're everywhere, which I didn't know that they existed yeah. either. And then um, one, it was a really hot, humid summer day in New York. And I went into the New York Public Library for the air conditioning. And I saw a flyer for death cafes. And it was kind of during that time when I was um, trying to be more curious about it and at first I was like oh what is that you know no way could I sit in a room and just talk about it um, for an hour but then I challenged myself to go and it was so interesting and I looked it up on the internet and it's a concept that exists worldwide it started in Switzerland just as these small gatherings over dinner or drinks where people would talk about death and mortality or anything around that and then it evolved and now I think there's death cafes in every major city and I'm sure in a lot of smaller cities and towns as well and basically you're kind of gathering with strangers and there's usually a moderator and you can just 
they will suggest a topic or you can bring up a topic and people are there for many different reasons. And that was so helpful for me just to see people speaking about it so openly and normally. It was kind of like it took the charge out of it for me. And I was able to say, you know, I'm here because I've always had anxiety around death and it was uh, so helpful. And I think, I hope that more people make use of these. And I mean, there's a lot of them, but I hope they spread even further because it's such a healthy thing. And I hope that our society begins to speak more openly about it because it's crazy that it's the thing that we all have in common, but we don't talk about it until it's right on our doorstep. And that just makes it way harder. Yeah, that's such, that's so true. It's like, everybody is going to die, but nobody wants to talk about it because it's a big, I mean, yeah, it's a fear of everyone, obviously, or maybe yeah. not for everyone. But <laughs> yeah. um, So I guess a technical question. One of the things I listened to your Q&A at the end of the audiobook, and mm-hmm. the one thing it said that you had to shift your mindset from Australian to New York in some scenarios, um, like with, I guess, maybe some of the lingo or the way I um, can you talk just a little bit about that? I thought that was an interesting fun fact, I guess, that I yeah. never thought about. I think that came about uh, specifically when I um, first listened to the auditions for the narrators for the audiobooks, and it yeah. was quite jarring for me because, you know, it's in first person as Clover, but they all had American um, American accents, obviously, because she's American. But I realized right. that in my head, she'd always been Australian because, you know, I read it in my voice. Um, and so that was really strange. but. During the editing process, I um, had my editor from the US and UK and Australia, they all edited it together. Um, and that was really interesting. You know, there were some things that I didn't, didn't even realize were Australianism or Britishisms that my US editor was like, no, that's not. <laughs> um, and so it is kind of, you, you do have to be aware of nuances. And, and, you know, even after 10 years, I still learn things that I didn't realize are not the same or things that I've been saying all along that I realized now that people had no idea what I was talking about. (laughs) That's so funny. Yeah, I love that. Um, Well, yeah, so I have one more question. Um, In The Collected Regrets of Clover, we followed, obviously, Clover's journey as she navigates lost compassion and new connections. Um, As we wrap up our conversation, what message or emotion do you hope listeners will take away from Clover's story, and what would you like them to remember as they close the pages of your book? Well, I actually wrote it to have layers so people could take what they need from it and I guess I would say generally that's what I hope people take what they need from it but the different layers that I really wanted to include was obviously being more open about conversations with death but also realizing that you know we we don't know when ours is going to come most of us and so and it could be in decades from now it could be in days from now so really just taking the opportunity to rather than reflecting on your regrets when that time comes, looking at your life now and thinking what regrets you might have at the end and if there are any small changes you can make right now that might get you closer to not having those regrets. Um, I also wanted to kind of make, I think loner characters in books are often painted as misanthropes or, you know, people who really don't like other people but I don't think that's always true of lonely people I think they just get put in this box by society and they find it really hard to get out of it or they just freeze up when the opportunity comes and so I really wanted to help those people feel seen and and make them realize that there's nothing wrong with them but if they do want to kind of get out in the world that maybe this could inspire them to you know take that leap in a way 
Um, And then I think just with grieving in general, I think in Western society in particular, we're very focused on people getting over their grief or going through particular stages in a particular order. And what I really wanted to convey is that everybody's grief belongs to them and it's up to them how they process it, when they process it, and that they never have to get over it. That grief isn't a finite thing. It's something that's going to stay with you forever, but it's just going to change shape. And it's okay to always be grieving someone because if you grieve someone, it just shows that you love them. And I think that's a beautiful thing. It's a painful reminder, but it's also a wonderful reminder of how great that love was. Oh, I love that. That's so true. Um, well, that's a great way to end it. That's going to bring us to the end of another episode of the Running Wine Mom podcast. I want to extend my heartfelt gratitude to our wonderful guest, Mickey. Mickey, thank you for sharing your insights, experiences, and beautiful journey of the collected regrets of Clover with us. Your ability to blend themes of, lo- of loss, love, and personal growth into captivating narrative truly resonates. To our listeners out there, the collected regrets of Clover offers a great reminder that life's moments of connection, vulnerability, and healing can emerge from unexpected places. It's a book that reminds us of strength within us to navigate life's challenges and discover the beauty of human connection, even in the face of loss. Remember, you can find the collected regrets of Clover in bookstores and online realtors ready to transport you into the world of emotions, reflection, and hope. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing it with fellow book lovers and seekers of meaningful conversations. You can also find me on Instagram at the running wine mom underscore, and you can find Mickey on Instagram at Mickey Brammer, which I will have linked in the notes. Thank you for joining us today. Remember, you are strong, you are capable, and you are all amazing. Until next time, keep running, keep sipping, and keep embracing the joy of motherhood. Thank you, Mickey, for coming. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This is so awesome. I'm just like I said, I just love this book so much. It was a it was a comfort book, I guess, for me in the weirdness of death topic. Um, And I went through it so quickly. And I'm so glad that it was recommended to me. And I hope others will um, love it as much as I do. I'm sure they will. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. And that's lovely to hear because, you know, I think as and I completely understand, you know, the death factor is hard for some people to kind of get over. And I think it really helps when someone says, no, trust me. It's not as depressing as it sounds. Yeah. <laughs> you should read this book. Um, so I really appreciate you spreading the word because it's really helpful to have people have the chance to explain it and, and to show that yeah. it isn't the, well, I think a lot of people do cry, but hopefully in a, a cathartic yeah. way. No, I agree. And that's like one of the things that I, like I said, I don't really read what books are about when people recommend <laughs> them to me because Sometimes I might overthink it and like, right. you know, I might have been like, oh, I don't know if I want to yeah. read about a death to Willa, but right. I'm so yeah. glad that I, um, you know, gave it that I don't read summaries, I guess. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, thank you very much. Cheers. And I will be back next Tuesday.